Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. <laughs> so what I would like to do uh, this morning is to begin with a sonic meditation uh, in lieu of the music. Um, there's a, uh, this is a continuation of the talk I uh, did on emptiness last month for those of you who are um, here for the first time. Uh, and there's a, a sutra in the Perfection of Wisdom Corpus. It's very, very short. It runs like this. Thus have I heard, at one time the Lord dwelled at Rajagriha on Vulture Peak, together with a large congregation of renunciates, with 1,250 renunciates, and with countless enlightening ones. At that time the Lord dressed the Venerable Ananda and said, Ananda, do receive for the sake of the welfare and happiness of all sentient existence this perfection of wisdom in one sound, the sound, ah. That's it. So what I'd like to do is uh, 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 chant the sound, ah, so uh, together as a group. So if you will, uh, can I have the bell? So I'll begin, we'll do it for about five minutes. Simply chant, ah, Thank uh-huh. you. 
Consider the sound that we just made. The sound that we just created arose out of conditions. It arose out of conditions. It was dependent, dependent in its nature. The conditions were us making it, right? Our chanting, you know, the sound ah. So the existence of that sonic object clearly displays its dependent nature to our senses. So it arose out of our participation and our intention. And this sonic object was constantly changing. As people entered and breathed louder, softer, constantly changing. So the changing and transformative nature of this object is clear to our senses, to our senses. And the object is impermanent, right? It has ceased. In, it, is, it is impermanent, once again, in a way that is accessible to our senses. So these three... Um, I call these three the marks, three marks of emptiness, the three marks of emptiness. So, change, impermanence, and dependence. Keep in mind this sonic object as we examine the facets of emptiness. It is the sonic realm, for humans, it is the sonic realm which most clearly displays for us the nature of emptiness. When I say that, I mean that um, in the sonic realm, emptiness is accessible as an experience, as an experience, not just an inference. So, um, for example, this bell, this watch, they are also arise dependently. They also are constantly changing, and they are also impermanent, like that sonic object. They resemble that sonic object, but I do not perceive that this bell is constantly changing. I do not perceive the dependent nature of this bell, and I do not perceive its impermanence. I have good reason to believe that it's impermanent. I trust that it is impermanent. But I don't perceive it's impermanence. That's the difference. So it's necessary to ground one's understanding of emptiness experientially so that, you know, like you can say, all things are impermanent. Yeah, like what? You know, like the sound of a bell, like the sound of our chanting. So, otherwise, it, it sort of remains abstract. You know, like, all things are changing. So, like what? Oh yes, like this experience that I've had. So then, then emptiness doesn't become so you know so free floating. 
it can it can feel you know, empty, <laughs> emptiness in Buddhism can feel very abstract. So it's good to bring it back to the experiential domain as often as you can. So, and experiences in the sonic dimension are a wonderful doorway or a gate to that understanding. Yeah. So um, it's it's not the only gate, but for humans it seems to be a very um, uh, a very open gate. However, we don't always um, um, we don't use it, you know, like we don't recognize it. So, uh, so it's a, a matter of bringing our attention to the emptiness of the sonic domain. You know, so we need to bring our attention to it. That's why practice is necessary to draw our attention to this understanding. You know. So. Actually, everything that appears, everything that appears is an occasion of emptiness. Everything that appears is an occasion for the divine, for the eternal. How is that possible? So, so you can look of it, look, um, you can understand it as everything falling under the arc of eternity. Uh, By arc of eternity, I mean, um, if you take an arc of time, say like a day, you know, like a day, right? So certain things endure for a day, certain things are present for a day. A lot of things don't even last one day, you know, they flicker, you know, like uh, say you light a match, you know, like it appears and it disappears. You know, the sound that we just created appeared and disappeared, it didn't even last one day. But many things do, you know? So if you take an arc of time like a month, like some things endure for a month, many things don't. If you take the arc of a year, you know, so we can all think of a year now, like 1998, like that moment of the year, what what endured, what was present through that entire year? So then if you can take, say, the... Um, the arc of time that it takes for <laughs> for our solar system to go around the galaxy, something like I don't know, two million five hundred thousand years. It's a very long time. <laughs> Maybe it's a billion years. So I think it's billions. Anyway, it's really long. You know, like so. <laughs> so what what would be present during that entire arc of time, right? What with not much that we can think of, you know, mountains would rise and fall, you know, like uh, human beings would come and go, you know, like, I mean, as a species, you know, like, <laughs> like so, so now think of the arc of eternity, you know, under the arc of eternity, then, is the moment of eternity, it's like you have the moment of a month, the moment of a year, you know, and then under the arc of eternity. What is present during under the arc of eternity? Okay, so um, that's uh, that's what we are um, moving toward in our investigation of emptiness. What is present under the arc of eternity? Yeah. Does that make sense? So, or is that a little? Uh, um, did I lose people here? <laughs> Please feel free to you know ask questions. So, 
So, um, as we investigate emptiness, you know, as we investigate emptiness, I call it unpacking the meaning of emptiness. But keep in mind your experience, once again, keep in mind your experience with that sonic object. So that would be like a, a, a grounding, like as we move through how uh, different Buddhists have interpreted the understanding of emptiness. So once again, the sonic object was dependent in its nature. It arose due to causes and conditions and had no reality other than those causes and conditions. I like that. That's the point. It was constantly changing and it was impermanent. So as we look at those three, you know, different Buddhist scholars, masters, different Buddhist schools, take those three marks of emptiness and they, it's like investigating those meanings, or I call it unpacking those meanings. And since emptiness is endless, there's endless interpretations, you know, like of, um, of the meaning. So take impermanence, for example. Um, I was reading The Perfection of Wisdom in 8,000 Lines, and um, uh, there's a very interesting chapter there where the Buddha says that in the future there will be people who will um, falsely present the understanding of emptiness. And so, you know, Sabuti says, how so? <laughs> like, and uh, the, the Buddha answers that they will say that impermanence means, uh, that emptiness means uh, impermanence as the abolition of an existing thing. You know, like, and that is an incorrect teaching of emptiness. That's very interesting. You know, like, see, it, what the Buddha was pointing to, is a, this is part of what I mean by unpacking the meaning of, of, of these uh, facets or these perspectives on emptiness, is that impermanence does not mean blasted into nothingness. Right? Impermanence means transformed into something else. Okay? So, for example, though that sonic object has ceased, it is still a memory. Okay? So, though it has ceased to manifest as a sonic object in this room, it has been transformed into a memory. Yeah. So, you can, look, um, you can look at impermanence as loss of function loss of functions. So like if you have a table and a leg breaks, right? So um, you might say it's no longer a table, right? But that doesn't mean it has ceased to exist. It means it no longer functions as a table because it can't can't do what you want a table to do. So uh, as we investigate these things, you know, like the meaning becomes uh, um, deeper, more profound, you know, like, um, and uh, and there are constant room. There's constant room for um, deepening one's understanding of emptiness. Last week, I did emptiness from the perspective of space, emptiness from the perspective of time. There's also emptiness from the perspective of process, process or change. So one way you can uh, comprehend this is think of yourself 
when you were like four or five. Okay. So, um, if you can't manage to remember when you were four or five, fifteen is okay. <laughs> so, and consider how um, how you've changed. It's really good to perform this on yourself, you know, because um, it's uh, um, you know, like your political opinions have changed. Your likes and dislikes in food have probably changed. You know, like uh, maybe you know the literature you like has changed. You know. It would be difficult, in fact, to find some aspect that hasn't you know, that hasn't changed. Of course, the body has changed. You know. um, so it's uh, it's a very good investigation. You know, like to um, consider oneself. You know, um, as an unfolding process. You know, like. And uh, from the Buddhist perspective, if you deeply investigate um, this process of oneself, one discovers that there is no abiding, unchanging substance. You know, and that's part of the meaning of emptiness. You know, there's no abiding, unchanging substance. There is. Um, that doesn't mean there's no continuity. There is continuity between the time you were five and the time you're... Um, Mature, <laughs> and so, you know, like, but this this continuity uh, is a continuity of uh, relationship, cause and effect. You know? It's very very good. You should do it sometime. Yeah, uh, it's a good. If any of you keep a journal, it's a good um, uh, good thing to do in a journal. It's like sometimes. Um, at various times in my life, I've kept a journal, and it's really uh, interesting to go back, say, five years or six years later, and you open it up and you go, what? Who is that? You know, like, <laughs> it's, it's very, uh, it's like you're reading about someone that you hardly even know. It's very, very interesting. So. <clears throat> then there's the emptiness from the perspective of ignorance. Okay, this is a, this is one which is very uh, prominent in the Zen tradition, uh, in particular. Yeah. Um, so uh, it goes uh, back to Bodhidharma's appearance in China. You know, like so, the, many of you know the story, but it's worth uh, retelling. You know, like Bodhidharma was an Indian monk who went to China, and Buddhism was a hit in China. It was the thing. You know, like uh, everybody was very excited about it. And if an Indian monk came from India to China, um, that was considered really good news. And so he was invited to speak to the emperor, and the emperor um, <clears throat> asked him, what is the true meaning of the holy dharma? And uh, Bodhidharma said, vast emptiness and nothing holy. Yeah, vast emptiness, nothing holy. Okay. And so the emperor said, well, who is it then who's facing me? You know, like, I mean, so that's that's the typical reaction, you see, you know, like that um, somebody will hear about emptiness and they'll go, yeah, well, you know, like, then what? You know, like, uh, uh, so Bodhidharma responded by said, not knowing stands before you, don't know stands before you. So, so this is, uh, what, he, what Bodhidharma was indicating to the emperor was that he was residing in uh, what in the Zen tradition is called a before-thinking mind, a mind that is before concepts, you know, like a mind which has not settled and fixed on its ideas. 
So when, when you enter into meditation, you access that before-thinking mind. You know, so that non-conceptual um, uh, mind. And the, you know, like our conceptual mind is like this little island you know, on the, in the ocean of consciousness. You know, like it's, uh, it's just a very, very small part. You know, like that, uh, that before-thinking mind is vast. You know, like so, and it it has a lot to do. If you think of that sonic object arising due to causes and conditions, our ideas also arise just like that. Just like that, they arise. Our ideas arise due to causes and conditions. Now, like um, for example, every idea I'm communicating to you, um, I got from someone else. You know, like so, ideas are like uh, energy or like food that we consume. You know, like they they. But uh, our attachment to ideas is so strong that we consider them almost our private possession. You know, it's very um, more than in any other dimension of our personality. We fixate our identity to ideas. You know, it's that's that's where uh, human. Um, uh, that's a very intense area of human attachment, you know, like the, to to identify with an idea construct. That's why people, you know, when they get in discussions about um, ideas, it can get so uh, uh, very quickly so um, heated, you know, like because uh, you're um, more likely than not you're attacking someone's sense of identity. Have you ever done that unintentionally? It's like all of a sudden, it's like you touch somebody's button, like you make a joke about, you know, like some politician or or a religion, like that all of a sudden, all this, you know, like you can practically see the flaming aura, you know, like uh, emerging. It's very, it's very interesting, you know, like so, like uh, one of the things that meditation allows us to do is to perceive the ephemerality of the idea realm. You know, so sitting in meditation, ideas appear in the mind, you know, like, and they float by, you know, like, and they disappear. Just like the sound emerging in this, um, in this room. You know, like, so, and that allows us to treat our ideas lightly. You know, like, you know, like, so, uh, you know, my teacher used to say, cut off all thinking. And what he meant by that is cease to cling to thoughts. Cease clinging to thoughts. All right. So um, it's easier said than done, though. You know, like, it does require some practice because it's a very strong tendency on our part to identify so strongly with, with our ideas. But, you know, it's... It's when we do that, when we fixate on ideas, we leave no room for anything, uh, uh, anything to change. You know, it's like uh, my teacher used to call it rock's mind. You know, like so, uh, many people have rock's mind. They're like so, if, <laughs> you know, like uh, rocks, boulders, oh, oh, <laughs> boulder, boulder mind. Okay, <laughs> you know, like. Uh, so it's that you know it's that mind that just will not consider any information that could possibly you know even remotely um, alter you know like how they understand the world you know, like so um, 
So different Buddhist traditions emphasize different facets of emptiness. The Zen tradition tends to really emphasize this particular this particular facet. You know, like it, it's uh, um, in the Zen tradition, this is like uh, in the foreground all the time. So like koan questions in the Zen tradition are designed to confront people with um, the uh, incapacity of the idea realm to handle certain situations. You know, it's like there pushes that issue. So if you can have insight into the emptiness of the idea realm, then uh, you can move from that and understand the emptiness of all things. But that's the pattern of all Buddhist approaches. Like if you can understand the emptiness of the sonic realm, from that experience you can understand the emptiness of all things, including oneself. That's why all these different facets and approaches, from my perspective, they have equal validity. You know, like one is not uh, uh, superior to the other. Um. <clears throat> oh yes, and here's emptiness from the perspective of analysis. So, so all you philosophers, listen up. So, <laughs> so this is a very prominent uh, uh, way of accessing emptiness in um, some Tibetan traditions, like Gelugpa, Sakya, and in the Chinese Tendai um, uh, tradition, analysis is uh, very important. Cha Yi is the uh, pivotal figure in Chinese Buddhism for this kind of thing. Um, so in some Buddhist traditions, if you uh, became very serious about this, you would spend 10 years you know, uh, learning various forms of logic and analysis. So are you all going to enlist tomorrow? So like that's <laughs> but, but basically, I mean, I'll just give you one example of, um, of if you take an object and you investigate the object, <clears throat> so um, like this bell, where do you find the bellness of the bell? You know, it is, is it in the shape? Okay. Well, no, it's not in the shape because there are lots of things which have this kind of shape but aren't bells. Okay. So, is it in the color? Well, no, because there's lots of things which have this color but they're not bells. So, um, is it in the weight? No, for the same kind of reasons. So, so like you go through this kind of systematic analysis, you know, this kind of checklist, of, um, and then you come to the point where you cannot find the bellness of the bell. You, know, you can't find it. And therefore, QED, the bell is empty. So it's empty of bellness, right? So, <laughs> so this, uh, I mean, I'm making, I'm doing this very, very quickly, but if you, if you really got into this kind of analysis and you did it correctly, it should come as kind of a shock you know, to you when you first engage in it. So like, I mean, you have this chair, you know, well, why do I call it a chair? Where is the chair? You know, like, so, you know, is it in its parts? Is it in its shape? Is it in its function? It's not in its function because I can sit on a boulder, right? And a boulder is not a chair, you know, like, uh, etc. You know, like, and then all of a sudden, it's like you lose a certain kind of um, confidence in the ability of the mind to discriminate objects 
You know, like from that experience, you once again begin to treat your ideas more lightly. So that experience, if you really get into it, there's a falling away of the analytic consciousness at the end, which produces an experience of emptiness. Yes. So what happens if you do that with yourself? Like you stick with the bell? Oh yes, right. You, you would do it with yourself also. For for example, you know, like I mean, my name is Jim. Well, where is Jim? Is Jim, you know, in the shape, you know, in my shape, and you know, like in uh, in my ideas, in my likes and dislikes. You know, they're all constantly changing. They're derived, you know, like and so. Um, that would be part of the system of analysis. You know, like it's called analysis of other and analysis of self. But the same system of reasoning would be applied. I like so. There's a very famous example of this uh, called the questions of King Melinda. Melinda was uh, is <coughs> Polly for a Menander. Uh, Menander was a Greek general under um, Alexander. You know, like, and when Alexander died, um, Menander was given uh, part of um, uh, what. Uh, of India, it was today it's Pakistan, but at that time it was India, and he became the Greek ruler of this small state. And like most Greeks, he had a lot of contempt for anything not Greek. You know, like, uh, you know, like the word barbarian is Greek for someone who doesn't speak Greek, right? You know, like, so <laughs> and uh, and he used to say, you know, in all of India, you know, like it's it's all, you know, I mean. They don't understand anything. You know, their their thinking is not deep, and yeah, probably Menander was trained in Aristotelian logic, because Aristotle was Alexander's tutor, and all this. You know, like I mean, so he had a he had a very uh, firm grasp of philosophy. So finally, Nagasena, a Buddhist monk, appeared before him, and this is an actual record of the debate between Nagasena and Menander. It's called the Questions of King Melinda. Very interesting text, and. Uh, you know, Menander has this view that there exists what are called substantial essences. You know, like that the reason you call a chair is because there is this chairness. You know, like, and that's why you know that's how we know it's a chair. See? And so Nagasena takes him through exactly this kind of analysis. Well, where is it then? You know, like. You know, like they use a chariot. You know, like so, is it in the parts? Is it in the shape? Is it in the color? Is it in this? You know, like and I mean, you know, Nagasena, you know, like just keeps keeps pressing Menander about it, and finally, you know, Menander, you know, says, well, no, I mean, I can't find it. You know, like and Nagasena says, just so, O King. <laughs> like, yeah. I like it because it's a game of words. If you're empty here. It's one word, then you have to have full, uh-huh. the opposite. And what you're doing with the bill is you're deducting all the time, mm-hmm. taking everything out. But right. what if you add it right. to it? That makes the bill. Right. That's a very good point. So um, one of the names for this system of analysis is called Madhyamaka, middle-way analysis. And um, let, me get, let me illustrate your point by uh, a little uh, fable. Suppose that, you know, I live in Sonoma. Suppose I came down uh, for breakfast with my roommate, Joan, and I, I informed her that I lived in San Francisco. You know, like, and so, uh, you know, like, Joan goes, uh, you know, thinks I'm making a joke, right? You know, like, cause, and, I, and I go, no, 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 we live in San Francisco. And so she says, 
you know, she finally realizes that I'm serious. Okay? And then she says, well, when was the last time you took the Golden Gate Bridge to work? <laughs> and I say, well, I haven't seen the Golden Gate Bridge in a long time. She says, well, when was the last time you saw the, you know, the Bank of America building? You know, like, I say, well, I haven't seen it. You know, like, when was the last time you visited Golden Gate Park? And so I haven't visited Golden Gate Park. So you know, like she goes through these landmarks and she says, see, it's not San Francisco, not San Francisco, it's not San Francisco. And finally, you know, after this kind of relentless you know, reasoning, it suddenly dawns on me that I do not live in San Francisco. You know, like, so, okay, right? So, so this form of analysis is based on the idea that people have the habit this form of Buddhist analysis, emptiness from the perspective of analysis, is based on the idea that people don't know where they live. You know, they think they live in a world of substantial and isolated, separately existing objects. But that is not, in fact, the world in which they live. So it's the same kind of, you know, kind of approach. You know, like, well, if you lived in a world of you know, separately existing objects, then this would follow. You know, then you would be able to find the bellness of the bell, the chairness of the chair, because that's otherwise they don't exist separately. You know, like so it's a, so they go through this checklist. You know, does is it the form that exists separately? Is it the this that exists separately? No, 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 no. And then finally it dawns on the practitioner, oh, I, I guess that's not right. You know, like, but, but then this, this form of analysis, in my opinion, goes too far by insisting that that's all emptiness is, which is the point you made. You know, like, because emptiness is also a certain kind of fullness. You know? So when this kind of analysis insists that that's all that emptiness means, it would be like Joan saying to me, no, you don't live in Sonoma. You live in not San Francisco. You know, like, and you know, and living in not San Francisco is the totality of where you live. You know, like, so you know, like, I mean, in an odd sort of way, that's true. You know, like, I mean, it's not, it's not a false statement. You know, that I live in not San Francisco is not a false statement, but it's not, it's not really where I live. So these forms of analysis have a beautiful function. You know, and the function is to point out to people that this is how you think the world exists. But it, that it ain't that way, you know. Like, and I can demonstrate to you that it isn't that way. You know, one, two, three. Like, like Nagasena approaching Menander. I mean, that's a good situation for this kind of analysis to to be used in. But the other perspectives of emptiness begin to fill out where you do live. You know, like, so for example, take the dependent nature of phenomena or the interdependent nature of phenomena. So the, the interdependent nature of phenomenon is um, is being able to understand that all of existence manifests in any given object. Now that's the fullness of that object. Now like so, you know, being able, you know, like the sonic the sonic object that we created was dependent upon all of us. It was dependent upon our breath, which is dependent upon the air, which is dependent upon the plants that breathe on earth, which is dependent upon the sun. Like, so, so that sonic object is full. Okay? So, so when we say it is full, it seems like the opposite. You know, like you said, the two are opposites, empty and full. You know, like, but actually their meaning is, um, 
they are opposite in approach, but they point to the same understanding. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Gay man, could you apply that to say cock, which, which by the same analysis is empty, and yet, yes. and yet would have full. <laughs> Of course you could. <laughs> it's not a standard Buddhist facet of emptiness, I would say. <laughs> but who knows? You know, like, so, uh, you know, sexuality is, uh, arises due to conditions. Right? You know, it's like uh, across a crowded room, there he is. You know, like, <laughs> you know, like and uh, and you know, and sexual uh, sexual energy constantly changes. You know, like, and um, and it's impermanent. You know, like our sexual encounters come to a, you know, come to an end. You know, like so, so certainly our our sexuality exhibits all facets of emptiness. You know, like, but, yeah. Um. Uh, Jim, can you speak to the relationship between impermanence and death and uh-huh. grief? And, impermanence, death, and grief? Yeah. So when I was talking about impermanence before, and I, I mentioned that impermanence means loss of function. Okay? So it's like, you know, and the example I used was a table. So when the you know, like if a table leg breaks, you would say, well, that's no longer a table, or, you know, tossed up, but that doesn't mean it no longer exists. When, when someone dies, there is a loss of function. The function is that you can no longer have breakfast with them. You know, like, the, you know, like that that's the loss of function. You know, like that you can no longer have a conversation with them. Uh, I mean, there's so much that is, uh, that is missing when someone dies. You know, like that it feels to us like um, impermanence as blasted into nothingness. Um, but if if you stay with it, it there are many functions which remain. You know, like, and the, so and you begin to understand death as a tremendous transformation. You know. uh, this is especially acute, you know, for for people we love. You know, like, but, you know, like, the, the most significant thing is that the love remains. So the, the, the function of love transcends the physical presence. You know, like, and that relationship continues. So in this way, in this way, the dying are still present. You know, just as that sonic object is still present. You know, like... The dying are still present in that in that they have a functional relationship with us, but it's not the same function that they had before they died. Uh, um, grief is a way of accessing those functions which transcend the physical presence. So, to, um, and whenever this subject comes up, I. I always say that people should not push away grief and they should not listen to people who say, oh, you'll get over it. My personal experience is that you don't get over it, but you integrate it into, it becomes uh, a theme of your life, you know, and uh, which is different from saying you learn to live with it. You know, like um, it becomes part of your understanding. If you push grief away, 
then accessing those functions which transcend physical presence becomes very, very difficult, if not impossible. You know, um, does, I know that's very quick, but is that, does that respond to your question? Or? Sounds very helpful. I mean, okay. sometimes I, uh, I can interpret from your talk that there's not permission to grieve. Right. And, and I've heard that in other traditions. Well, in our, it's, it's part of our culture. So, um, uh, when my lover died, he had two kids. His oldest son was given three days off of work. You know, like, and that, and that was supposed to take care of it. You know, like, in, in traditional Chinese culture, you're, you're given three years. You know, like it is expected that you know the grief process will take three years. You know, like I, I doubt that's still true in China today. But in traditional Confucian culture, there were a lot of rituals involved to to go through this process. You know, like people are, you know, like it's like you know three days. Okay, that's enough. Get on with it. You know, like, it's not, I mean, that's like utterly unrealistic. You know, like and uh, and not helpful. You know, like so. Um, you know, when it, everything that exists is an occasion for the realization of emptiness and the divine. And that is true of our feelings as well. You know, the feelings are just as, just as real as this, you know, as this, as the table, as you and me. You know, like, so, you know, but it's a matter of, of how, we, um, how we approach those feelings. You know, just as you know, like just as how we approach the sonic domain will determine whether or not we can access the sonic domain in a way that will help us understand the emptiness of all phenomena. Similarly, when we access our feelings in that way, then feelings can be a gateway to deeper understanding. You know. If we become, if we make feelings a project, you know, and and part of our identity, then we have, you know, then we have a problem. It's like the then it's like fixating on an idea. So I mean, a good example of that is anger. You know, like when anger appears, I mean, you know, like we're human beings. If anger appears, you know, like you know, all the precepts in the world that say we shouldn't be angry don't make any difference because there it is. You see, right? But you know, like clinging to the anger is what I call it the anger project. You know, it's like the anger project is, you know, like so and so cut me off in traffic. I got their license number. Boy, you know, I will not rest until <laughs> until you know, like they are, you know, they pay, you know, for that. That, that's the anger project. It turns into hatred. Many, many people live their lives based on the anger project. Grief can also become a project, the grief project, you know, like, in which, you know, like, you know, like, I am the person whose loved one has died. You know, like, that, that is me. You know, like, that's who I am. You know, like, and that's, that becomes very destructive. You know, like because it brings uh, um, to oneself and to others in the same way that the anger project would become. You know, like so, um, yeah. Is that? Very helpful. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Do, you, do you think um, just just to be looking the emptiness alone? Uh, if you put the exception come along, work with that. I think it would be easier 
Just accept, for example, uh-huh. if, you know, your loved one passed away, whoever. Yes. Accept that this that man, this person come with me this this far. Yes. And this person have a destiny that has to move on. But but recognize the 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 part that we would happen together for that period. Yes. But also at the same time we're able to let go, because we're able to accept that. And again, it's infinite too, because nothing permanent. You know, right. But recognize the part that we be together. I call that um, gratitude. You know, like gratitude. It's like when when you allow grief to pass through you, what emerges from that is gratitude for the time you spent together. You know, like and um, uh, and and acceptance for the fact that that time has come to an end. So, gratitude, grief transforms into gratitude if you allow it to grow. You know, if you allow it to grow, if you don't cling to it. And like, does that is that in agreement with yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's um, so uh, that's a good way to end this talk, and because uh, we are uh, reaching um, reaching the end, and that is emptiness from the perspective of gratitude. You know, like, because gratitude, I've said it before, but I I never tire of it. You know, like that is the fullness of emptiness. That is the understanding of the interconnectedness of all things. When that feeling of gratitude is present, the wisdom of emptiness is active within you. you know, like, you know, like so. Um, so I'm very grateful to have been here. <laughs> I'm very grateful for the year 1998. I wish all of you a wonderful year in 1999. You know, and may we all quickly um, attain enlightenment and save all sentient beings from suffering. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.